Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How are we doing, Covenant family? Good to see you this morning. Take your copy of God's Word. Join me in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. What an absolute delight it brings to my heart to be backstage hearing these people sing with a volume I've not heard in over a year. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. How that so intertwines with what we're going to talk about today. And so if you're watching from home or even if you're in the seats, you may want to share this message uh, with someone who may need some hope today as we finish a series that I, I hope has helped you to make an important distinction. And that's the difference between bad religion, which is something we've been talking about. We've been describing these sort of toxic, harmful beliefs and behaviors that, that claim divine authority, which makes them particularly dangerous, and, and contrasting that with the best of faith, which frankly is what I think I heard just a few minutes ago from backstage. And we've learned that the difference between bad religion and, and real faith is essentially the difference between justice and injustice. It's the difference between oppression and freedom. How are you going to live? It's the difference between pride and humility. It's the difference between someone who's merely posing and someone who is actually producing the fruit of the Spirit. And today, we're going to conclude with a message that I think is pretty simple. What does real faith actually boil down to? What does it look like? What does it feel like? All of us grow up with various kinds of prejudices, don't we? Negative views of things that we have a very limited view of. And then we, sometimes we have to grow up. Sometimes we have to get an education. Sometimes we have to encounter other people who are different from us. And, and, and our world widens a little bit. And, and there are a couple of areas in which uh, I grew up with some prejudices. One was regarding this thing that some of you are probably like me and you hate them. And others of you are probably a part of them. There are these things called labor unions. I grew up with a father who managed a fleet of milk trucks for a living, and I heard multiple stories of drivers tearing up trucks, not showing up on time, not doing what they were asked, that were terminated, and they would show up the very next day with their union representative, and I got this really bad taste in my mouth uh, about organized labor, and it was based solely on my father's experiences, which were not illegitimate, but that's that's what they were. That's all I had to go on. Then we moved off to seminary to Louisville, Kentucky, and we joined a church that we were part of on a regular basis. And I got to meet this really godly man named Sid. I learned from him. I sat in his Sunday school class. And we were some weeks into this before my mind was just full flip turned upside down because I realized he's the head of the local carpenters union. And I thought, this doesn't make sense. He's a good guy. You ever had something like that in your life? Like you got this really negative view of something, and then you meet somebody. And, and what I learned from Sid was a different side of some things. Now, are some unions corrupt? Well, of course they are. But are there others that do what the idea of organized labor was always supposed to do? Of course there are. Well, that was a prejudice of mine. I failed to distinguish between a toxic version of something that might otherwise serve the public well. And two years ago, we ran into another one of these things. 
My mother was beginning to decline in health. I was consulting with my father about the best way not only to ensure for her care, to make sure that she received the standard of care that she really needed, but also that we could secure the estate. Dad was really worried about that. Neither he nor I had the answers for how to do that. And so I suggested an elder law attorney, and that's when I ran into another prejudice. My father didn't trust lawyers. He just didn't. And so it took some time for us to overcome. What, what does this look like? Wait a minute. Yeah, there are some really bad dudes out there with law degrees and licenses to practice. I admit that. But most people in this profession, it took us a little while, it took my father especially, several months to come to the conclusion, most people in this profession are not the ambulance driving leeches that you, ambulance chasing leeches that you see on television. They're not. Oh, and by the way, just while I'm on this subject, that's also true of most pastors. Most pastors that I know are godly people. They love Jesus. They love his word. They love the church. They want to serve. But can we be honest? Sometimes when you pick up the paper and you read about someone who's abused their power or you watch television, you see some of these shysters that are there pulling out money and promising you all kinds of things and invoking the name of the Lord over things that the Lord never said, it's, it's a little hard to believe sometimes, isn't it? Because sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between the toxic fake, the toxic counterfeit, and the real thing. It's just hard. But just like my father, who now has a secure state, has been well taken care of and well protected, because he finally was willing to sit down with a solid attorney who has saved us so many headaches and protected his assets. It's easy to be prejudiced, but you also recognize when you've been in the presence of the real thing, don't you? You do. No matter the profession, no matter what kind of environment we're talking about, and what we're going to learn today in this very final installment of the series, Bad Religion, is that this is true of faith as well. Paul told us this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, if anyone is in Christ... If anybody's got the real thing, in other words, Jesus is the real thing. Amen? Jesus is the real thing. If anybody has Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, genuine faith makes a difference because you simply cannot. It is impossible to encounter, to have a real life encounter, a transformative encounter with the God that is described in this Bible and walk away unchanged. You just can't do it. It's just impossible to do it. And so the question this morning is, is your faith real? Is it real? We learned from Jesus' little brother James this morning the difference between the toxic counterfeit and the real thing. James was an elder at the very first church that ever existed in Jerusalem. He also writes, and we are reading this morning, the very first letter to be included in what we will eventually call the New Testament. And he's going to describe for us four unavoidable effects of genuine faith and how they are distinguished from counterfeits, satanic counterfeits. If you have the real thing, it's going to produce four undeniable traits. You ready? First one is this, righteous speech. Righteous speech, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When I was growing up, I heard this sort of conventional wisdom that there's a reason that the Lord gave you two ears and only one mouth. Have you ever heard that? 
my mother said that to me, my grandmother said that to me, I'm, I'm sure you've heard something similar. Well, the root of that conventional wisdom, actually, we just read it, it's in these verses. What we also need to understand, though, is even these inspired words from James are themselves rooted in something deeper. These words echo a long history of Jewish wisdom regarding the misuse of our words. In fact, let me give you just a few from the Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Well, that's something to think about, isn't it? But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs eleven twelve. 12, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. When you pop off and wonder why it gets worse, you're welcome. Here you go, right? That's what it, I love this one. This one's my favorite. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. That's Solomon's way of saying, I got good news, people. Even if you're stupid, you can keep it a secret if you just won't talk. That's what he says. And then there's Jesus. Proverbial wisdom, the key to this is listening. Right? And, and learning and gaining wisdom, that requires slowness, that requires patience. And Jesus warns us in Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Wait, wait, you can't judge somebody's heart. Well, actually... According to the very words of Jesus himself, one's heart can be judged. And you know how it can be judged? By simply listening to what comes out of the person's mouth. Listen to their everyday course of conversation. And it's on that basis that James says, the anger of man and the righteousness of God are completely in irreconcilable. They're incompatible with each other. And he's talking not just about anger in general. There are times to be angry. God is angry. We should be angry when God is angry. That's not wrong. But he's talking specifically about unrighteous anger. Anger that's driven not by some holy sense or, or request or desire for things to change if they're worse, but, but driven out of my own selfishness, my own depravity. That's unrighteous anger. We read in Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives vent to his spirit. Just blah, 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 blah. But a wise man quietly holds it back. Paul says the following, really, really wise wisdom here in Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So here, here's what we're getting in all of this when you kind of put it together. Here's the summary. The telltale sign of unrighteous anger is a short wick. Boom. You could just, any little thing, right? Maybe it's everything makes you angry. Or maybe people who are around you have noticed they don't really know what makes you angry, but you get there quickly. James says, if that's true of you, there's something deep down inside that's dirty, and it, it's got to be cleaned up. Does everything you don't like outrage you? Does everything you disagree with make you want to turn off the set, close the book, pull your kid out of that class? Is everything a four-alarm emergency? Do people, when they're around you, would they, if they were honest, like if we got them away from you and in a closed room somewhere, and so we tell, tell me what that man is like, tell me what the way, oh, every, every time we're around them, like our anxiety goes up. 
Every time we're around them, we're, we're walking on eggshells. Every time we're around them, we just, we just don't know. Every time we're around them and we want to do something or we want to talk about something, we got to think about how to handle them. How's that going to happen? My friend Rob Shank has uh, become a good friend over the years. He's, the, he's actually one of the founders back in the day of something called Operation Rescue. It was an anti-abortion organization, a big, big part of the pro-life movement when I was in high school. So I love him, and, but he's older than me, and I like reminding him of that sometimes. But Rob was, Rob was telling me once, he's, he's kind of a nonprofit entrepreneur, if you will, does a lot of really, really good stuff, runs the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute now and, in, in D.C., and he was riding on one occasion in, a, in an automobile, was going to some appointment with someone who's, if I called his name, you would absolutely know who he was, most of you anyway. He was a presidential candidate a little more than a decade ago. He didn't get very far in the race, but he was there. He was, uh, you know, on those, uh, on the stage with other candidates debating and all those other things. And they were, they happened to be in the same car riding together. And he looked at Rob and he said, how's your fundraising going this year? And this is 2008, 2009. And so Rob said, well, call this man's name. He said, you know, it's, we're in the middle of the great recession right now. It's, it's a little tough. I'll be honest with you. We're not about to go under, but it's tough. We're sucking wind financially. And this individual looked back at him and said, well, I'll tell you what your problem is. You're not scaring them enough. What do you mean I'm not scaring them? He said, well, if you want to get people's money, you've got, you got to make them afraid and you've got to make them angry. You've got to give them an enemy to fight. You've got to make, this is in the back of a limo, guys. This is real world stuff. This is, and I know some of you are like, yeah, well, that's just how D.C. works. I know, but it ain't how the kingdom of God works. It's not. And this guy's claiming to be a Christian, telling my friend, this is what you got to do. Told him this, listen, if your own fundraising letters do not personally embarrass you, you're doing it wrong. Do you want their money or do you not? You got to make them afraid and you got to make them angry. You know what that's called? Bad religion. That's what it's called. That's what it's called. And scripture 2,000 years ago, warned us about this because it will produce converts. That's the danger of it. We do a lot of carpooling here in the panhandle. People work in D.C. People do, Even now, post-COVID, there's still a lot of going back and forth. And, and, and I was talking to a carpooling group back pre-pandemic several years ago, and, and they were kind of hemming and hawing about this one particular individual that rode along with them. And they're like, we're trying to figure out what to do. We really don't want to hurt his feelings. But we really, like one of them finally just came out and said, we we don't want to ride with him anymore. <laughs> don't raise your hand. You got anybody like that? You're carpooling with you. Yeah, I wish they were kind of out of the pool. Yeah. What's going on? Well, he gets in the vehicle, and if he's we figured it out. If he's not driving, if we can get him in the back seat, he can't control the radio. Because what we've determined sets him off is he's addicted to talk radio. And everything he hears coming through the speaker just makes him angry. And then Joel, he starts yelling at the radio. And then he starts yelling at us. And we're just trying to get to work. Like that's all we want to do. And by the way, this happens on the left as well. All you, well, it's, it's everything. America's so oppressive. And it, well, you typing that from your MacBook? You need to take a nap. Okay. I'm not, I'm not talking about left or right. I'm talking about just this general sinful disposition to get all out of whack and be outraged about all number of things when the Word of God just told you that's actually exhibit A of bad religion. You can't keep your mouth shut. You're always popping off. 
No matter what that is, no matter what it's addressing, it's toxic. Real faith, James tells us, will will bridle that. It'll produce a righteous disposition that is evidenced in righteous speech. Okay? And that's going to produce something else. Consistent repentance. Look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Put away the bad religion. Pick up something real because it's going to save you. But the former is full of poison. I remember being about 12 years old and hearing my grandmother complain about having to go on the city water system. I grew up in the 1970s, early 1980s. She had never paid a water bill in her life. She had always been on a well. Um, For those of you who don't know what that is, that's when you you tap into your own water source. I know there's a lot of city water, city sewer folks. Uh, I know we have an entire generation that's never known a day when there wasn't bottled water. Uh, I I get that. But, But when I grew up, and maybe this is part of what's wrong with me. I'll admit that. I drank out of a hose. Anybody else? Okay. That's, I, that's, that's just how I grew up. I drank out of a hose. And in, and in upstate South Carolina when I grew up, I got to tell you, I, I love living in West Virginia. I love all of you. But, but my people got the best water on the planet. We really do. Because underneath the ground in South Carolina is this blue granite. I mean, it goes hundreds of feet down, and it both cools and flavors that water. I mean, it doesn't need a lot of treatment. And especially when it comes out of a well, it's just amazing. But I picked up the hose at my grandmother's house one day, and I did not get a mouthful of amazing. It was nasty. We waited a couple of days. It just got worse. And then one of my uncles decided to explore, and you know what he discovered? Some of you already know how the story ends. A family of snakes had infiltrated my grandmother's well. And so what came out of that hose, what came out of the kitchen sink, it it would be forever nasty because it's at this point, it's irreversibly contaminated. And what James is doing here is he's employing a similar example. It's not enough. It just, all right, well, just keep your mouth shut. Nobody will know you're stupid. No, God doesn't want you to be stupid. Further good news, Right? This isn't just about self-discipline. This is about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's not just covering up your unrighteous anger so nobody but your wife and kids know. It's not just about biting your lip whenever you're tempted to cuss. All right, We need to explore, James says, the chief causes. Go down in the well, see if there's any snakes there. And James tells us there are two causes of the kind of behavior he's condemning. Impurity which is essentially a contaminated soul, and wickedness, which is another word for uncleanness or hatefulness. And we're told furthermore that this impurity, if we behave in this way on a regular basis, we're now a convert to bad religion. It runs rampant. It overflows. It's prevalent. Nobody can miss it. See, all of us have bad days. All of us say things we shouldn't. All of us do things to other people that we shouldn't. We need to repent of that as well. And our brothers and sisters need to be gracious and forgive. When those kinds of things happen, but what James describes here is a much deeper problem. It's like a well that's been contaminated with snakes. He's not talking about the occasional, I lost my temper. He's saying the general course of your life is like this. It's, it's just you're constantly outraged. You're, out, you're unrighteously angry. If, if this is the way you live, there's something filthy down in there. And you need to do what one of my uncles did years ago. You need to go explore 
and find out what's there. The answer is to repent of that. Don't double down. Don't excuse it. Don't, well, the other side did this. No, repent of it. And you do it this way. James says, put it away. Put that away. Call on the Lord to cleanse your soul. Listen, some of the most unrepentant people, stubborn, dug-in people I have ever met in my life, and you know it's true, are simultaneously deeply religious people. That's a follower of bad religion. Consistent repentance, well, that's a sign of the real thing. I'm constantly going to the Lord. I'm constantly asking for forgiveness. I'm constantly seeking his grace to be cleansed. And what that's eventually going to produce in my life is transformative obedience. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being, no, being a hearer who forgets, not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I'm looking around the room right now, and I'm guessing most of you looked in the mirror when you got out of bed this morning. I don't see anybody for whom it's obvious you didn't. You, you looked in the mirror, and, and, and I'm guessing again, based on what I see, that you probably noticed that you needed to run a brush through your hair, that is, if you have any, that you needed to maybe put a little makeup on, or that maybe some cologne after, or that maybe you got a little stubbly and you need to pull that razor out. I mean, it was, you, you looked in the mirror to check yourself because you know one of the most utterly stupid things you could have done was to look in the mirror with bedhead and bad breath and five o'clock shadow and go, all right, I'm ready. <laughs> and just go, right? This isn't how it works, right? You look in the mirror. James says this is, this is what a purveyor of bad religion does. They, they hold up the mirror and they think, well, looking in the mirror, that's enough. Well, I look in the mirror. I read God's word. I got the Old Testament memorized. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm asking if you've gone deeper with this. Okay, because you don't show up to work with bedhead. I mean, I know we've all gotten used to conducting meetings on Zoom, but even, even Zoom, when you've got a work meeting, even if you're party down below, you're still business up top, right? You know better than to do that. You know to turn that camera off before you go to the bathroom. Nobody wants to see that. So don't look in that, you know, right, right before the Zoom session. Oh, I got to check myself out. I got to make sure I'm okay. That's what he's talking about. Real faith looks into a mirror, and it involves continual self-examination, continual repentance, and, and this is the big one, obedience, all right? And, and the result is what James calls the law of liberty, right? This isn't work salvation. This isn't try harder. This isn't stop this and do that. This isn't self-improvement. There's a law that he refers to that is interpreted by and fulfilled in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and it frees you from the bondage of obedience, of unrighteous anger, and selfishness, and that ugly, disheveled nature of our souls. And the result is that I am now 
If I do as I'm instructed here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am empowered to do something that by nature and in my own strength I could never do. And you know what that is? Obey. To obey. And by the way, that's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, follow me. It's, oftentimes it's just an obedience problem. All right? It's just an obedience problem. Jesus said, my sheep, you know what? They hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. Disciples hear and obey. And that's at the heart of real faith. Are you living in consistent obedience to Jesus? And of course we're going to fail. Of course we're going to have to repent. But is the general course of my life one of obedience? If so, here's, here's the good news. Other people will see that. Right? If, you're, if you're a convert to bad religion, people notice. They feel oppressed. They don't want to be around you. They're anxious. They wonder what's going to set you off. It's like, you know, popping off is not a spiritual gift. Y'all know that, right? It's not. Always being nasty, that is not a fruit of sanctification. Always trying to strengthen. I remember John Sullivan as a denominational leader, old enough to be my father, and one of the things I learned from him, he said, if you think your job is to straighten everybody else out, you need to go to work for the mortuary. They need some people straightened out at the mortuary. They're called dead bodies. And sometimes that's got to happen. That's the only place where you're actually going to be able to straighten out everything that's crooked. But the rest of the time, look at yourself. And if you do these things, it's going to produce undeniable change. People know when they don't want to be around you. People know when they kind of sense this oppressive, this angst, this man. But you know what? If you're following Jesus, we see this, don't we, in, in, in the testimony of the apostles. We see it in Moses. We see it in people throughout the scripture. People could tell when they had been with Jesus. They could tell. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled. You see the contrast here? Here's bad religion. All right? Somebody's always popping off. They're always running off the mouth. They're always... Right? You want the pure, undefiled thing. Here it is. Here it is. It is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All right? So we're back to what comes out of our mouths and what we do. Rick Warren once claimed the body of Christ has been hacked into pieces, hands and feet, and the only thing left, unfortunately, is a great big mouth. We love to talk. James, now notice, James doesn't tell us not to speak. So that, that's the other extreme of this. You got this, this stupid sort of thing that says, you know, uh, share the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. And it's attributed to St. Francis, which if he could come back from the dead would probably kill somebody for attributing that to him because he never said it. But it's also not true. That's like saying, call me and if you have to, use numbers. What kind of dumb statement is that? Of course, sharing the gospel requires a verbal witness. It obviously, James doesn't tell us not to speak. What he says is bridle your speech. That's an equestrian metaphor. Some of you know how that works better than I do. Pull back. You're, you're not trying to kill the horse, but you are trying to control it, aren't you? 
That's what he says we need to be doing with our tongues. Restrain it. And the best of what Jesus has to offer and gives us in the power of the Holy Spirit will produce sanctified speech. So if whatever religion you have doesn't do that, it's worthless, it's fruitless, it's of no useful purpose. And it really doesn't matter what you know or how successful you appear. One day it's all going to come crashing down. Jesus described it this way in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and, and it became kind of like our tent out here in the north parking lot. Anybody park in the north lot this morning and you see that tent? Like, I think it's a goner after last night's storm. And some people, that's their faith. It's like a temporary kind of, let me try it out, see how it works. Let me, I'm not really going to be all in. Or it's built on some faulty foundation and then the big tests of life come and you go outside and you see just this gosh-awful mess like what we saw this morning when, the, when our team members showed up this morning. Bad religion doesn't change you. It doesn't better you. It doesn't secure you. It oppresses you. And then it'll oppress a lot of people around you as well. The real thing, James describes two results. These are not the only two we find in Scripture. But since we're looking at James this morning, let's take a look at a couple of these. Number one is external mercy. External mercy. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. These are not the only vulnerable groups that exist. They're not the only vulnerable groups that are called out in Scripture. But they are the most often mentioned groups of vulnerable when the Scriptures speak about the oppressed. And as we talked about earlier in this series, we... We know the scriptures have a lot to say about the oppressed. I, I know that. I, I know we're having these discussions on a nationwide level about oppression and all these kind of things. I get that there's a false narrative that everything is about oppression. I understand that. But just because everything is not oppression does not mean that nothing is oppression. Just because everything's not an issue of vulnerability and taking advantage of people doesn't mean there's not bona fide vulnerability. Let's not forget that as the body of Christ. We serve a God who came to us when we were vulnerable. You know what you know, another good substitute word for vulnerable is? Helpless. You can't do anything about the situation you're in. Yeah, well, you should just, well, what are you going to, this is what our kids learned when they went to Baltimore a couple, couple of years ago, or a couple of weeks ago. Some of you go, well, those people should get jobs. Are you, talk, tell, tell that to our young people now. They're going to go with, with what car? They, have to, they actually have to travel. There are no jobs where they are, walking distance to where they are. Well, public transportation, with what money? People do sometimes get trapped in a cycle. And when he brings up widows here, he's talking about the most vulnerable of all when it came to the first century. And so when we adopt orphans, when we serve uh, the needs of foster kids, minister to widows and serve the poor and oppressed, we advocate for those without a voice, we are acting in a way that is identically reflective of someone who met you and me in a far worse state and redeemed us. That's what happens. We serve a God who came to us when we were helpless. James says real faith imitates that behavior. It has a heart for the vulnerable. External mercy. And secondly, internal holiness. Keep yourself unstained from the world. So here's the big idea. Jesus loves the world. Jesus died for the world. Jesus calls us not to isolate ourselves, but to love the world. Jesus calls us to engage that world, and Jesus calls us to do so without becoming like the world. The word for that is holiness. 
Separation. And even inside the church, that concept now is about as popular as a belch in a crowded elevator. You know, it's funny. We whole nation's divided almost completely along two lines. The right wing doesn't want to hear anything about mercy. Left wing doesn't want to hear anything about holiness. And James just said, you get both barrels from me. Both. Brothers and sisters, there may not be a better time for the body of Christ to exemplify in this very culture what it means to be unstained and what it means to have mercy than through our actions as well as words to call our entire culture to repentance. That's real faith. Bad religion abuses you, then it equips you to abuse other people. Bad religion makes you mean. Bad religion is dark because bad religion is, is, is my work. That, that's what I'm capable of. It's all I'm capable of. Real faith, James expresses it in that, that, that passage, that, that, that phrase, law of liberty. That's a work only Jesus can do. So do you have the real faith? You may be wondering that right now. I don't know. Do I have the real? I've always believed in Jesus, or I thought I did. I read my Bible semi-regularly. I'm here as often as I can be here. I don't know, Pastor. Am I, do I have the real thing? I want you to picture in your mind a three-legged stool. There's something interesting about a three-legged stool. It, you need all three legs, don't you? Or it's just it's firewood, right? That's all it is. Do you have the real thing, the real faith, the real thing that James has been talking about? That, that he builds upon his, his big brother Jesus' words that we see throughout the scriptures, three things that you need to test yourself in. And 2 Corinthians 13 tells you that. Test yourself to see whether you're in the faith by these three things. Number one, first and foremost, this is like first base on a baseball diamond. You can hit second, third, and home. After you've hit one over the center wall, they're going to call you out if you forget to touch first, okay? That's what this is. Belief in Jesus' death and resurrection for your sins. That's it. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You call on the name of Jesus. And I used to hear evangelists say, you got to mean it with all your heart. How many people are like me? And you heard the evangelist say that, and you went, what does that mean? Mean it with all your heart. Well, I, I don't know exactly what that evangelist meant, but I can tell you this. A genuine call on the name of the Lord will produce these two other things. Number, number two, the testimony of the Holy Spirit tied to your own. Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit speaks back to you and says, yeah, you're mine. Your mind. And you know what the tangible evidence of this is? This is the third leg. It's a transformed life. This is not a message because we do not preach from a Bible that tells you if you want to be saved, you have to live a transformed life. That's not the message. It's saying if by faith you have put that faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, and if by grace, God has responded to that genuine faith by declaring you righteous and making you a new creature in Christ. You will live a transformed life. You can't help it. You don't encounter the God 
who split the Red Sea and drowned the entire earth in a flood and killed the most powerful man in the world and ruined the most powerful nation in the world through the Egyptian plagues and caused an axe head to float and raised his son from the dead. You don't encounter that God and walk away unchanged. You just don't do it. So are these things, do you, do you see these things in your life? If we say, 1 John 1 says, we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And then that brings us back to 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, we're about to have a baptism service this morning. And we see this as well. Embodied in the lowering of an individual completely under the water and bringing them back up. The old has passed away and the new has come. That transformation of your soul is part and parcel of a cosmos-wide redemption that is coming. And I get to start talking about that next week, the return of the king. But you can get a little taste of that right now. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. Revelation 21, 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's real faith. Exchange whatever kind of cheap substitute you've been playing off of for that and do it today. Because brothers and sisters, real faith is real, it is powerful, it is life-changing. And here's the good news, it can be yours right here and right now. Is your faith real? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for your word, which is so abundantly clear on what it takes to have a relationship with you and what the benefits of that relationship are going to be. And Lord, I just ask your Holy Spirit now to convict hearts, to move people in their seats at this moment who maybe have not believed, to come and to confess their sins and to find new freedom and to find release from oppressive things that, that they thought would somehow redeem them. And it's done nothing but bring about further oppression. Father, would you set them free today by drawing them to the foot of the cross? May they be new people in Christ. Lord, for, for those today who sometimes are confused and they're seeking to follow you and they genuinely love you, Lord, may, may the words of our brother James encourage them today. May they provide the needed clarity to be able to discern between light and darkness, between the worst of religion, and the best of faith so that we can be ready on that day when that eastern sky splits and when you claim your own ultimately, finally, literally from this earth. And Father, through the gospel, we can all have a taste of that today. So give it to us, Lord, not because we deserve it, but because you deserve glory and honor for your actions and the way in which you keep your promises through your word to anyone who will turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, 
I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.